From late capitalism, where property has more rights than people, this is hell. The words tyranny and dictatorship have been used to describe the Cuban government's reaction to protests there. Even those on the left in the U.S. who you would think would be a bit more hesitant to use those words have applied them to Cuba in an effort to show objectivity and an opposition to authoritarianism everywhere. But what do those words really mean when they're used to describe the victims of cruelty and oppression, some of which played a significant role in causing the protests themselves? For that matter, what does democracy mean when it is used so liberally to describe so many different nations' governance, which are far different from one another, with varying degrees of actual democratic rule? It's as if these words almost become meaningless, falling far short of accurately describing not only how nations rule, but how they relate to one another. And when considering those interrelations, maybe it's best to understand nations not by labels imposed upon them by outsiders or falsely claimed by the nations themselves, but instead we should consider them through power relations and how the powerful dominate and subjugate others. That power then can even lead to enslavement and has been empowered, if you will, by the imposition of consumerism and the propaganda of advertising. I know it's a lot to take in, but it will all hopefully become clear when we speak with Uruguayan American writer Jorge My Food, who wrote the Common Dreams articles Cuba and the U.S., The Difference Between Dictatorship and Tyranny, and Consumerism, Another Inheritance from the Slavery System. Jorge is a professor of Spanish, Latin American Literature, and International Studies at Jacksonville University. Dr. My Food has won many research awards, including the Excellence in Research Award in Humanities and Letters, as well as one of Latin America's oldest and most prestigious literary prizes, the Casa de las Americas. Jorge is the author of many novels, including The Queen of America, Crisis and Tequila, and books of essays such as A Theory of Semantic Fields. You can find out more about Jorge at his website, myfood.org. That's M-A-J-F-U-D. Dot org. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Burtz. It's Wednesday, so it usually would be Richard Norwood, but he's back in the shop for one more look at his eyes. So producing today's show is Alexander Jerry. Alex, anything new about you? Yeah, can I use this platform to give people out there a little bit of advice on life that I just stumbled upon? Sure. If you have a coffee pot or you have a teapot, that's already a big mug right there. You don't need to add another vessel into the equation. I'm over here. I'm drinking coffee right out the pot, (laughs) spilling it all over my shirt, saving maybe eight seconds daily that I would otherwise use washing a mug. I figured it all out. (laughs) Look at you. I ate something called uh, crawfish cheesecake last night, and uh, I do not have food poisoning. Both those things really surprised me. A, that I actually ordered crawfish cheesecake to be delivered to my house when it's 90 degrees outside. And then that I woke up without food poisoning. So I guess I dodged a bullet. But more importantly than any of that, Richard, Richard, Alex, what's this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, what are we talking about on This Is Hell's 50th anniversary in 2046? What are we going to be talking about on this show 
on our 50th anniversary that will be in the year 2046. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can check out all of our swag right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we must have your answer by the end of tomorrow's show when we are announcing this week's winner. We want to thank those of you who have shown their support recently. Thanks to Ross in Three Oaks, Michigan, and Donald in Madera, California. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our guest So as of last week, for those of you who have been listening, you already know this, but This Is Hell has now been airing for 25 years. So we asked you how you originally discovered the show because we do do not have the marketing budget or tracking software or surveillance technology to determine how you actually found This Is Hell. So the only way we're going to find out is by doing it the old-fashioned way, and that's by asking you to voluntarily give up that information. Tara writes, hey, Chuck, I've been meaning to write about this for so long, and the call for the first time story is my prompt. The interview I heard for the first time was with a doctor who wrote an article about the makey up stuff. Doctors say to each other a lot of the time, I work community mental health, a.k.a. psychiatry, so it's nice to hear a doctor call other doctors out. Since then, I've heard so many interesting things, and you always do a great job of condensing the past shows into a very well-written narrative, so I don't need to. I've burst out laughing like a lunatic at the dark humor you toss around. But the coolest thing happened yesterday as I listened to a rerun of the show posted on the website. It was my second listening while I did some Vedic astrology, and you read an email from Aram. I missed this on the first listening, and I said... I know Aram, and as you read the letter, because it was about Nicaragua, I knew it was definitely the Aram I knew 30 years ago in Boston. We live in different places and haven't seen each other in a decade, but I really like that we are both listening to you. Thanks, Tara. Now, I'm not certain about the interview that she mentions with a doctor, although I'm pretty certain it was with a doctor here in Chicago who was talking about the disconnect between medical professionals and the people they serve, especially in communities of color. And I do not know what Vedic astrology is, but I do remember the letter with Nicaraguan guest suggestions from Aram, and that is very cool that people who have not seen each other in 30 years found each other again by finding this is hell. Ian writes, Hi Chuck, I don't recall the exact day I discovered this is hell. I can say that it was probably two or three years ago, and I was at a point in my self-education that I was desperately searching for a way out of the corporate news cycle and democratic talking heads. I went through many podcasts until I finally landed on this is hell as part of my daily listening. What I do remember is when I became a regular listener, it was the beginning of the pandemic, and I was going on long bike rides through LaBaugh Woods on Chicago's northwest side. It was a great time to binge. This is hell. I think Jeff was doing his Good Doctor Moment of Truth series, and while I love the interviews, I often dislike the moment, and sometimes your monologues too. Slowly but surely, you guys wore me down with your sincere pursuit of underrepresented perspectives and overlooked information. Now I listen gleefully to every moment of the show and sometimes say the taglines out loud along with the recording. A lot of listeners keep telling us that in their stories of how they found this as hell. Ian continues, and the moment of truth has become one of my favorite parts of every week. I'm sad that I missed Jeff's live reading last weekend, but I've got the anniversary party on my calendar. Stay hellish. Ian, speaking of the 25th anniversary listener appreciation party and art show, This Is Art, which is happening on Saturday, September 18th, with an art opening live music, as well as a raffle of This Is Hell related or adjacent prizes. And if you have a suggestion for musical acts to perform or artists to show their work, please send them ASAP to chuck at thisishell.com. Adam sent us an email asking if the party is kid-friendly. Yes, the party is kid-friendly. Kids are allowed in bars, to the best of my knowledge. However, they are not allowed to sit at the bar by law, as I understand it. Also, the party may be kid-friendly, but not all kids are 
friendly to the party. That is, for toddlers, the whole thing can be and has been overwhelming, and meltdowns do occur, which is no big deal. Kids will be kids, so whatever. So yes, the party is kid-friendly. We were a bit concerned about the content of the art freaking kids out a few years ago, but kids do not freak out as much as you'd think they would, and they don't freak out as much as adults do. For instance, we had a series of paintings where it started with a portrait of someone's face. A face that would slowly disappear from painting to painting as dugs were shown to be dugs, as bugs were shown to be crawling out of the portrait's ear and devouring the face. Lot of adults found those series of paintings incredibly disturbing. At one point, I'm walking by them. I felt a tug at my pant leg, and I looked down. A five-year-old boy was trying to get my attention. I leaned down, and he said, I like the one where the bugs eat his face. So, kid-friendly, sure, but keep in mind, your kid may do something that is very, very disturbing to adults. That's the This Is Hell 25th Anniversary Listener Appreciation Party and Art Show This Is Art happening Saturday. September 18th at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue, here in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. If you are an artist or would like to show your work, or are a musician and would like to perform, or would like to suggest an artist for the show or musicians to play downstairs, email me at chuck at thisishell.com. We'll share more of your stories of how you found This Is Hell following our guest. Coming up, tyranny, dictatorship, democracy, colonialism, imperialism, slavery, consumerism, and global inequality and racism. I know, it's a lot. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what are we going to be talking about on this show on our 50th anniversary in 2046? What are we going to be talking about on this show on our 50th anniversary in 2046? The person with our favorite answer wins whatever piece of This Is Hell merchandise they want. You can see all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. And you can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we must have your answer by the end of tomorrow's show. Live from the Nightmare of Want, this is hell. Words like tyranny and dictatorship have been used recently when reporting on protests against Cuba's government on the island nation. However, we rarely consider what those words really mean, let alone how both may be the product of relationships that are not as simple as those terms suggest. Meanwhile, all sorts of systems of governance claim to be democracies, despite having varying degrees of representation by the people. Maybe it's best not to describe nations by the labels they claim, but how they interrelate. And when it comes to those relations and hegemonic domination through colonialism and slavery, the role consumerism and advertising has played in that domination is illuminating. Here to help us wrap our minds around all of that, Uruguayan-American writer Jorge Maifud wrote the Common Dreams articles, Cuba and the U.S., the difference between dictatorship and tyranny, and consumerism, another inheritance from the slavery system. Welcome to This Is Hell, Jorge. Uh, Good morning, Chuck. It's really an honor and a pleasure to to be in your uh, radio show. It's a legendary show, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much. I appreciate that. I don't know about the legends of it, but, you know, this, both of these articles, they are interrelated in themselves, and they are fascinating, and I love when people go over language, and the fact that you have written a a book of essays uh, called A Theory of Semantic Fields, I think is absolutely, makes this conversation even more excited. I'm more excited about it just because of that. You write how in 1997, and a Cuban friend told you Fidel Castro is a dictator, but not a tyrant. I did not understand his idea. It seemed contradictory. For some reason, I never forgot it until a few years later, reviewing declassified documents. I thought that Washington was not a dictatorship, but a tyranny. So let's start with those uh, declassified documents. What were the declassified documents that made you think of your friend's question again? Was uh, In that particular case is where um, uh, the Cold War uh, CIA declassified uh, document that uh, you, you know they uh, impose uh, engineer many military coups, destroy many democracy like Guatemala in 1954 and so on so forth. But uh, the uh, not, not to mention that uh, many, for example, mockingbird operation in in the U.S. or 
since some the operation in Latin America to uh, with uh, the CIA inoculated the big media and uh, prepare the field for in Latin America for um, overthrowing um, uh, democracy. Uh, engineering military coup, like in Chile, so on and so forth, uh, blocking Cuba, etc. Uh, it was a tyranny, clearly a tyranny. And uh, in the U.S., uh, well, it was in, uh, done in a different way, much more sophisticated, but still um, inoculating the press, uh, making people think what they wanted to think. Uh, as uh, Edward Bernays said at the beginning of the 20th century, that is how democracy works. And it's very consistent uh, with what uh, uh, Theodore Roosevelt said uh, uh, a few years earlier, it was uh, in 18, uh, 1893, I think, uh, but he repeated and wrote many other articles in uh, 19, uh, I'm sorry, 1898. Uh, um, and clearly, say democracy uh, is justified because it has been organized to um, give the best land uh, to the white uh, people, the white race, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So uh, th- that is also called democracy. And uh, um, for example, I remember in uh, one of my international uh, classes, we were studying many coup in, in, and dictatorship, military dictatorship in Latin America. And uh, it's not rare, but I remember specifically one student said, uh, "It's incredible, Latin America had so many dictatorships." meaning they are so corrupt, uh, corrupt. of course, the corruption was also uh, promoted by big American co- corporation. Uh, we can talk about that. But uh, the, uh, and, and she said, uh, and uh, the U.S. never had a dictatorship. And uh, that was uh, from a, an outsider point of view. <laughs> it's kind of a joke for me uh, because uh, uh, if you have uh, a system or a regime which uh, only 10% of white male Owner are, were able to to vote, be voted to to run for presidency or any other um, um, public position, and also you uh, have slaves, millions and millions of slaves, and you call it a democracy. It's a, it's kind of a bad joke, and that lasted uh, just as that system until Lincoln, and then continued in different ways. But uh, just if we talk about the first century of this uh, of this uh, country, that was called democracy, and uh, narratives are even more important than reality. That was not a democracy; that was a, a, a ethnic uh, dictatorship. So, uh, in a single world, in a single country, or in different countries throughout history, throughout. Uh, geography, you are, you are, you will see how many system countries, etc., are called democracy when most of them are a dictatorship or a tyranny, like in the case of a hegemonic superpower, uh, like the U.S. has been since the beginning. Um, we can talk, for example, about uh, how it, uh, this country expanded after the the, the, the American Revolution. Uh, to take uh, Indian land, and uh, that was the beginning of a very tough, uh, brutal uh, imperialism. Um, there were more than two million uh, Indians, uh, which were nations there. And in the at the, at the end of the 19, uh, sorry, 18th century, at the beginning of the 19th century, uh, as, as many people living there uh, after beyond the Appalachian. Uh, as in France or in England or in the 13 colonies. So they were not just tribes. They were uh, stolen, exterminated in different ways with biological weapons in some, some cases because of, you know, the story, uh, and, or in other cases, uh, just displacing them. And uh, Andrew Jackson said that openly, clearly, that uh, was to defend ourselves. And you will see the first inconsistency or the first uh, divorce between narrative and uh, facts. We were attacked first. That has been is going to be repeated multiple times to defend democracy, to defend uh, freedom, uh, liberty, etc., etc. And uh, the irony is that uh, every move was done not just to steal Indians' land, uh, to kill them or displace them, um, to reduce reduce them in reserves, uh, but also to expand slavery in uh, a land that uh, it didn't exist, or in the case of Mexico, in a land where slavery was at law, was uh, illegalized. And every takeover, every land they took in order to break the balance in Washington, because there there was a kind of fragile uh, balance between pro and anti-slave, 
slavery. And in order to southern politicians, that is the Confederacy, then the Confederacy, uh, powerful uh, politician and then ideology, uh, they broke the, that balance, uh, annexing Texas, annexing more Mexican land, and reinstalling uh, slavery. And all that was done with a narrative. You can read in the newspapers at the time. You can read the, the transcript, the speeches in the Congress. They said to expand freedom, liberty, and democracy. So, uh, and, and, and people even today uh, keep kept repeating the same. Uh, we were a democracy, we, we fought for democracy, and then continue the same story in Latin America. Every time they destroy multiple democracies or, or place uh, their own uh, dictators or Creole dictators, uh, they say that was to, to protect freedom. Of course, they didn't say that was to protect uh, big companies' freedom, like uh, United Free Companies and Royal Companies, so on and so forth. Um, so that is uh, a clear... Um, language fight that is part of the book i wrote uh, so, many years ago about the that the, the, the ideological so that is the fight of um, uh, semantic fields you mentioned so what happens to the meaning of democracy when so many nations with so many systems claim they are democracies and especially when they're acting in undemocratic ways i mean whether it's the u.s or as you list off colombia or chile or I would add South Africa or, or Israel, for that matter, or that the U.S. was successful in bringing democracy to Iraq or Afghanistan because those nations had elections with U.S. military support. What is democracy when it is applied in so many different ways? Does it end up uh, losing all of its meaning, or does it even become a dog whistle, a subtle political message for those in the know? Yeah, it was a tool, obviously, but also it was corrupted and power uh, every different time corrupted the, the meaning of words in order to uh, use them as tools, not to liberate, but to oppress other uh, people. As I mentioned before, during the, the, the slavery times in, in the U.S., that was continued in different, in different way, ways. Uh, but um, that is, for example, uh, when the, in the 50s um, there was a language fight uh, between uh, those who wanted to were in favor or against uh, integration, racial integration. And one of the, if you remember, science said uh, race mixing is communism. So communism was the devil at that time. Of course, the Soviet Union was the main ally of the U.S. Uh, until the Second World War. Uh, but after that, uh, in order to preserve the, the new hegemony, hegemony of the U.S., uh, global hegemony at that moment when Europe and Japan was destroyed in shambles. And uh, so the communists became the, the most important enemy, global enemy, and nobody questioned about that. So what was in question was racial integration, so race mixing. So they uh, attach one um, a sentence that is... Uh, in the middle of the of social fight to something that is nobody questioned. So communism is the devil at the moment. Of course, communism will, will said, of course, uh, race missing is communism because we don't care about race. And that's why the, the American Communist Party was mostly integrated uh, or made by uh, African-American uh, uh, members. And so there is always, has always been uh, from religion, for example, uh, um, the, the repetition every Sunday of something that we want the reality to be, but it's not. We re you repeat, you repeat, you repeat, and reality will change. If it doesn't change exactly outside us, it will change inside us. So that is, uh, is part of the, the religion route. And in the U.S. that was very, very important. But also because I, I, I will add that the 13 colonies uh, were born in the base of deep divisions, racial divisions, social divisions. Remember, they were white uh, slave, indentured slave as well. And uh, the governors wanted uh, to create more div racial division in order to prevent the poor people, white, Indian, black, uh, to unite. Um, so um, that, that was uh, uh, inoculated even more uh, the, I, the opposite idea, the idea of union. So in order to uh, create a, a strong idea of patriotism, union, the flag, the, the, the speech of the union, so on and so forth, in order to unite all that uh, highly fragmented, socially, politically fragmented reality, the narrative was very important. So you, and, and not to mention that the Enlightenment narrative of uh, 
equality, everybody was uh, was born or created equal, versus the reality of, uh, for example, you know, uh, Thomas Jefferson had slaves, never liberated uh, their own the mother of his kids, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So the the deep divorce between reality and narrative was solved with a stronger narrative, a repetition. And even today, people repeat uh, fake news, mm-hmm. like the remember the main uh, 1898. That was when we were attacked by Spain. Actually, it was an accident. Everybody knows now, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, that was created by the yellow journalism. That that was created in the in the 90s of the 19th century, um, 19th century, and uh, so even today, uh, college students repeat what happened with the American, the Spanish American War. Well, we were attacked first, and they sunk the the main, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So narrative is much stronger than facts and reality. So who? Uh, control narrative and the media, the big media plays a major role. The secret agent plays play a major role as well. So who uh, were able to control and defeat the other side uh, through n- narrative, that is who is going to control politics, who is going to control or confirm uh, economic uh, dominance and social dominance, the ruling class, et cetera, et cetera. And that's not a a coincidence, the, the ruling class in the U.S., but particularly in Latin America, has always been the the, the owners of the big media, the the people who were in governments, in dictatorship, when the democracy didn't work for them, or in, the, in what we call democracy, between quotation mark when democracy uh, worked with them, meaning people voted for our candidate. When every time they voted for other candidate that uh, threatened our economic, not political, but economic uh, privilege, like, for example, in Chile with uh, Allende, uh, actually, a CIA, Cuban CIA agent, Antonio Desiana, told clearly uh, that uh, Allende, Salvador Allende, was a much more important threat than Fidel Castro, because Allende uh, took power by election. So that was unacceptable. And, and, and again, the, the, the press play a major role. Uh, the most important um, uh, press owner of Mercurio, uh, Edward, was friend of, uh, friend of um, Alan Nixon and came to the White House to help to engineer the, the, that bloody uh, coup and dictatorship of uh, Augusto Pinochet, so on and so forth. And uh, so narrative is central, absolutely central. Actually, Howard Hand, a very important CIA uh, agent uh, who was responsible with, along with other agents of the, um, the coup against uh, Arbenz in Guatemala in 1954 and uh, the big invasion in Cuba, said clearly, our major weapon doesn't, um, I say, shot uh, bullets, but words. More or less, I'm quoting without reading, but it's more or less that was. So words really, really matters, and uh, particularly for power. And of course, those who are against that or try to counterbalance it uh, also fight the same battle uh, for or and with words. So narrative what, narrative as a project of hegemony is, I mean, that's a really fascinating idea. And you write that for strategic reasons, Haiti or Honduras are not called capitalism, even though they are more capitalist than the United States. It is not capitalism, but hegemony that defines the power and material wealth of a country. And you point out that, uh, you know, Theodore Roosevelt, among many others, put a put it clearly when he said the democracy of this century needs no more justification than the simple fact that it has been organized so that the white race gets the best lands in the new world. And you write of Theodore Roosevelt's democracy being about the white race. That democracy was adopted, adapted a thousand times times to serve a minority, no longer so white, but economically and financially dominant. In formal democracies, the ruling classes do not censor, as in a traditional dictatorship. Critics are reduced in this, to the silence of the mainstream media or 
when these transcend in some way, they are demonized and in the days of the Inquisition. So how does the media benefit from U.S. hegemony and dominance over others? Why would they demonize any critic who contends the U.S. is more a hegemon than a democracy and that it's claimed that the U.S. is a democracy obfuscates the public's recognition of how the ruling classes work like a traditional dictatorship, not needing to censor because through its power and influence, it can control the press through those in the media censoring themselves. How does the media benefit from U.S. hegemony and why self-censor critics? Well, the media uh, in the 19th century and beginning of the 20th century began to sell copies. So they were more or less, uh, they were still uh, in the hands of the wealthy ruling classes in the U.S. and both the U.S. and uh, and uh, and Latin America, and when there, of course there were all, also other media who were more marginal and tried to fight all that. Uh, we remember many cases where many of them lost uh, their job, etc., because of reporting the actual facts in different parts. But that's another that's another point. But in Latin America, for example, uh, the, uh, and in the U.S. in the 20th century, uh, most of the income of the media comes from advertisement, and uh, and big advertisement. <laughs> belong to big corporation normally, and they have a lot of power. So there are many encouraged uh, uh, journalists that uh, openly criticize many things, but they are kind of, uh, we, we may say, uh, inoffensive uh, because of number or because of their narrative, but mostly because of numbers. Uh, because if they really goes against uh, their own advertised um, um, in CAM, they are going to lose not just their job, but probably the media is going to be broken. Uh, in Latin America, they uh, normally um, began to um, rise the ghost of communist threat that was irrelevant in Latin America until the, the 60s, 50s or 60s, uh, as many U.S. ambassadors and many CIA agents said, uh, for example, in Uruguay, you are going to the ambassador in Uruguay in the 50s say to Howard Hunter, you are going to, to find more communists in Texas than here in Uruguay. But the CIA said clearly, well, but that's what is, we need to sell now. This is the fight against communists. And the press plays a very important role. And they receive a lot of money also. And not just money, they, that was a way to keep the status quo. In the, in the, in the past, uh, it was uh, a fight against... Uh, um, black people who were not able to govern themselves. That narrative became politically incorrect after Nazism. Uh, and uh, after the Second World War, it was communist. What was a perfect, uh, a perfect excuse to, to uh, justify everything. And the press was uh, very important in that sense, received a lot of money, still received uh, many grants or in, in a very indirect way. In the 60s, 50s, 60s, and even 70s uh, before the church uh, committee, you know, uh, that was direct investment on the press. And, uh, but uh, after the 70s on, uh, they found a much more indirect way to different channels to, um, to put money from, for example, NED, the National Endowment for Democracy, USAID, USAID uh, so on so for different organizations, foundations, etc., that normally benefit more those who are not uh, a problem. Um, sometimes uh, central left in order to to take more radical leftists or more radical critics uh, to the center that that was also they were the CIA and other organizations invested in central left uh, media but mostly in the dominant conservative right-wing media uh, that uh, normally repeated and were considered the, the um, champion of democracy so in that, that was how the media in Latin America benefited a lot. And in the U.S., uh, thanks to ads from the big corporations, uh, we, we, we are not very profitable for, for, for big media, uh, for, say, the Washington Post. Of course, there are very good uh, reporters and journalists that have done a great job, but they are kind of op-ed um, writers that they are not a real threat to the, the dominant narrative, the master narrative. But little by little, sometimes uh, those uh, resistant uh, uh, journalists can make a difference, but not, not a lot. Uh, I mean, the, 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 the major big media uh, 
can accept criticism because they are not very dangerous for them. Right. And you also point out that Washington and the mega corporations have been the main promoters of communism and other left wing alternatives on the continent. One of the first cases dates back to the 1930s when the massacres of Indians and peasants in El Salvador occurred after the Second War. And the most important ally of the United States, the Soviet Union, became the only opponent with power and possible inspiration for the third world against the old Anglo-Saxon tyranny. It is at this moment when the CIA was born, 1947, and shortly after they created, without realizing it, Che Guevara. Now, this sounds very similar to the U.S. helping to create the Mujahideen in Afghanistan against the Soviet tyranny in that country. A group splintered and some became uh, Al-Qaeda. To you, why is U.S. hegemony so short-sighted? Or is it just hegemony in general? The domination over others is always just focused on the short term. It's like a dinosaur. It's a very powerful body with a more brain, because even when they are most of the time called intelligence, uh, they have made a lot of mistakes. Even when they killed the Che Guevara, it was a strategic mistake. The, the Che Guevara became a, a, a myth. And, uh, but many other mistakes, and they promoted uh, communism. But the sec- a second uh, reason may be just greed. Uh, for example, uh, when, the, when uh, uh, Fidel Castro visited uh, the White House, uh, Fidel Castro said, I'm not a communist, just I, I assume probably he was not uh, openly a communist. Uh, communist. He was trying to explore. Actually, if you read uh, Che Guevara diaries, many times, even when they were clearly leftist uh, and anti anti um, imperialist um, um, people, uh, they said uh, we are uh, exploring and uh, we have no clear idea what is going to be the, the, our uh, government or how. Uh, meaning. They never say this. Our government in Cuba is going to be a communist government, uh, but they had clearly because of uh, Ernesto Che Guevara bad experience in Guatemala. He had to escape after the CIA uh, overthrow of the democratic uh, um, government of Jacobo uh, Arbenz, and uh, when they uh, Guevara and the Castros won the revolution in January in, in 1959, uh, Ernesto Che Guevara clearly said uh, Cuba is not going to be another Guatemala, meaning we're not going to allow so open uh, press to, um, um, and to, to call for interventions and to, uh, to destroy our uh, independence, because remember, independence was the most important threat to big American corporations. Uh, that's why they, in, before the, 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 the Cold War, uh, they uh, placed so many dictatorships in order to get uh, benefit, tax benefits, land benefits, etc., etc. And they ruled those banana countries, basically. Um, so, but the independentist government, every independentist government, even when they were kind of uh, capitalist uh, uh, governments, they were uh, destroyed immediately. And uh, Guevara said that. And so uh, um, uh, Fidel Castro came to the White House in order to confirm um, uh, economic uh, um, and international relations with uh, the U.S. That was very important for the, the Iceland economy, et cetera, et cetera. We're talking about the major economic superpowers in the 60s. It was the peak of the, the, the U.S. Um, GDP in comparison with the rest of the world. It was 30%. Now, now it's, I think it's 18. So but at that moment, it was 30% of the total global GDP. And, uh, and Eisenhower didn't um, uh, receive uh, Castro. Uh, Nixon, the vice president, received him and uh, had a two hours uh, interview. He said, I think he's not a communist, but a little naive, et cetera, et cetera. But they already had a CAA uh, plan to invade that because as many others said, we want Cuba to be another Guatemala. So arrogance is a, was very short sight uh, for the intelligence. And actually uh, uh, the very important uh, CAA agent, David um, uh, Atlee Phillips said, uh, Ernesto Guevara and Fidel Castro learned that was after the, 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 the fiasco of the uh, Big Bay. They learned from history, Washington didn't. So that was the, his, his answer uh, for the, the catastrophe. And, uh, and so again, the, um, greed, arrogance, that was part of the, that short sight. Uh, and 
business is always short sight. Uh, if not, we wouldn't have this uh, um, environment, ecological catastrophe right now. Every business wants very immediate result for today, for tomorrow, not for 10, 20, 30 years to come. And that's the logic of the big business. And uh, I think that may explain your or answer your question. So you also point out that uh, Che Guevara is described as a murderer for having ordered the summary execution of 200 criminals from the Batista regime. The CIA reported that it was nowhere near the number executed by the previous regime. While Cuban terrorists such as Posada Carriles and Orlando Bosch and many others who dedicated themselves to planning bombs in airplanes, ships, hotels, diplomatic cars such as Orlando Letelier's and collaborated with genocidal mafias such as Operation and Condor were protected by Washington. This is not to excuse the killings ordered by Che or to have a discussion over how many people he did have uh, executed, but what does Washington protecting terrorists say about democracy in the United States? What impact does protecting terrorists have on any claim the U.S. has of being a democracy? Because they work for them. Uh, I would say for Washington, we need to differentiate what is the U.S. Uh, with, and Washington, right, and big corporations. Uh, but they were working for big corporations and for Washington uh, plans and strategy, whatever you want to call it. Uh, Prasada Carrillos, Orlando Bosch, etc. were terrorists, but there were many others who used to put bombs and uh, were protected by the CIA. Uh, Posada Carrillo was a, a CIA agent, was in the payroll. The FBI co uh, classified him as a dangerous terrorist. It doesn't matter. He was uh, walking down Miami until he died uh, a few years ago. And, uh, and along with many others, he put, uh, and they put a bomb, you know, in a Cuban uh, airplanes, killing more than 30 70 people, young uh, athletes, and um, many other bombs, etc. A bomb in, in Washington, D.C. that was that killed um, uh, or, uh, Letelier, Orlando Letelier, the, the Chilean uh, minister. And uh, nobody, almost nobody cared about that. Uh, some of them paid a few years in, in, in prison. And sometimes uh, there were many other cases. For example, you, you remember the case of Manuel Noriega, he was a CIA agent. He worked for uh, Bush father when Bush father, uh, short father, was a CIA director in the 70s. Met him in Washington. Uh, was an, uh, an ally. Um, had a lot of uh, commerce with the drug traf uh, traffickers like um, um, Pablo Escobar and many others. Uh, helped the Contras. So it, he was uh, played a very strategic role when even or despite or because. He was a very corrupt uh, person. And, uh, and finally, when he became too independent uh, at the end of the 80s, uh, everybody was forgotten and he was kidnapped with a bloody invasion, in, you know, in, in, in Panama in, the, in 1980 that killed hundreds of uh, other people. And finally, he was uh, kidnapped. And the same happened with uh, some Colombian drug mafia paramilitary uh, elements who were introduced by actually Washington before the FARC was uh, uh, founded in, in the 60s and, uh, and still exist today. And in some time to time, they were bring to the U.S. justice and they pay a much uh, smaller um, time in jail or whatever in order to prevent to speak too much about other things that are very uncomfortable. More or less, this is the case of Manuel Oriega, for example. And, uh, and in the case of the, some Cuban uh, terrorists like uh, Posada Carrillos or Orlando Bosch, well, they were fanatically convinced that they were doing the right thing, and the CIA uh, protected them, and along with many others. Vesiana was another one, et cetera, et cetera. So it was just a, a chess uh, game, regardless of the, any moral game. We, at the same time that we say we are defending democracy, human rights, uh, et cetera, et cetera, we were systematically promoting terrorism and uh, dictatorship. Uh, it's, it's almost impossible to name one, uh, I would say, the, even the Soviet Union never, even when they had the interest in Latin America in the 50s on, basically, uh, mostly, and they were not able to, and had not the capacity to uh, uh, impose any dictatorship, uh, communist dictatorship, 
in the in Latin America, not even the Cuban dictatorship. They were allied, of course, after the the invasion of the of uh, Kennedy, um, but uh, they were not the the force like the CIA or Washington who uh, established and destroyed many democracy and established many dictatorships. That was just a chess um, game uh, without, I repeat, any moral or consistent. Uh, consistency in 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 principles or even in language. Just repeat, repeat what you want. Sim- very simple uh, ideas and very simple words. Repeat many times, uh, as Edward Bernays said. Let others to say what we want uh, the rest of the the society to believe in, and uh, some uh, prestigious uh, elements like physicians, whatever, and uh, people will believe that because they they want to believe very simple things and. Well, that was the business of big uh, corporations, and uh, the U.S. has um, supported of those big corporations. That was very common in Latin America. And many killings, like Banana Massacre in Colombia, 1928, uh, uh, was just uh, people, workers, who were uh, asking the United Fruit Company for bathrooms and physicians because they observed that they die very young age. And uh, they say the United Fruit Company simply say that's not my responsibility, and uh, they began a strike. And uh, immediately, the the United Fruit Company contacted uh, Washington. Washington contacted the Bogota, that is Colombia government, and the Colombian government sent the the army, classic Latin American army, who protects the ruling class and, and the ruling class protects uh, international interest as well. And they sent the army, the Colombian army, and committed a massacre there with uh, people, just work, workers, uh, uh, fighting for very basic rights, very basic uh, needs. And uh, that was forgotten. And uh, so very immediate uh, needs, money needs, uh, money interest of big uh, companies, big corporations, in this case, American big corporations, um, ITIT, for example, uh, Pepsi-Cola, for example, responsible or accomplished, accomplished uh, with a the Chilean uh, uh, coup, and, uh, and at the same time, the, the governments and the political class in Latin America, uh, part of the ruling class, uh, ally with the Latin American military. Uh, so the American military normally had an international role, while the Latin American uh, military play a clear national role uh, oppressing their own people in, in, uh, in the name or in favor of a big... Uh, corporation or the the creole ruling class yeah you that also, was very short sighted but uh, that was that is the logic I, I understand you also had an article of common dreams headlined consumerism another inheritance from the slavery system in it you write to declare the abolition of traditional slavery for their possessions in the caribbean the british envisioned a new type of enslavement that the new slaves would themselves desire on june 10 1833 rigby watson a member of parliament clearly summarized this idea you then quote watson saying to make them labor and give them a taste for luxuries and comforts they must be gradually taught to desire those objects which could be attained by human labor. They're discussing uh, the indigenous here. There was a regular progress from the possession of necessaries to the desire of luxuries. And what once were luxuries gradually came among all classes and conditions of men to be necessaries. This is the sort of progress the Negroes had to go through. And this is the sort of education in which they ought to be subject in their period of probation. So was colonialism a process of educating the colonized with what consumerism is? Did consumerism fuel colonialism? Yes, uh, of course, colonialism was uh, previous. Uh, slavery system was not exactly capitalism, but uh, it, it it was the responsible for all that expansion with war, etc. And uh, but the I will say that the the Confederacy lost the Civil War in the U.S. and won many ideological war. And uh, if you compare, for example, the narrative and the action, as we mentioned at the beginning of this show, uh, of this pro-slavery um, or masters, and uh, the trickle-down theory, for example, today, uh, or in the, mostly since the 80s on, that is, they look very similar. So you have a ruling class, as Edward Bernays said, uh, that uh, have to teach the fools 
uh, how to live or what to do in our interest, that is democracy, according to him. And uh, they look very similar. And uh, you have a master, had a master class in, in the 19th century. Now you have a, a neo-feudal uh, class in the in the 20th century. It's time to time, the press uh, advertise a few exceptions that someone who were working in, a, in his garage and became millionaire, like Amazon, Bezos, etc., and uh, very very few exceptions, meaning that the whole system works just for a very few, and nobody well, think that that's uh, ridiculous, just they deserve that uh, success, etc. Uh, it looks very similar to the uh, slavery times. Um, the, the better the wealthy are, that is good for the slaves. And many slaves in, in the 19th century were in favor of that system because the, the, the master protected them. Actually, you, as, uh, remember, as uh, Malcolm X said, uh, there were two different kind of... Uh, uh, black people, they say they use the N word because b- before this wave of political correctness, and uh, the field Negro and the house Negro. So the the, the house Negro normally defend the the, the master against any um, um, danger made or threat by the field Negro. Those who had nothing to to lose or were in the base of the pyramid. Well, very similar right now. Uh, even those who are uh, wage slaves that work uh, uh, the, the entire life for eight, ten hours per day and are in debt, they had no uh, way to have uh, health care, for example, something very basic in a civilized uh, society who had accumulated centuries and centuries of uh, human progress, which were kidnapped by that ruling uh, class, that feudal class, that is the, in, in, in our case, the, the very wealthy people, everybody knows two or three uh, wealthy Americans have uh, as many capital as the half percent of the, the society, which is something absurd, but still exists. They own the, the media, they own the narrative. That is why nobody dares uh, to challenge that. If uh, you, someone began to, to point it out, well, some politician like Sander did that, but that is not in the master narrative. The master narrative said the opposite. They all deserve that, and they are working to create jobs. That is work should, that doesn't matter. So the wealthy create jobs in that narrative. So the masters create uh, prosperity, uh, uh, in a slave uh, system, so they, they look very similar. Do you have to put uh, every element uh, side by side, and you will see that it's kind of a continuation, more civilized, we may say, but uh, from a psychological and ideological and social point of view, very similar. You also point out that um, <clears throat> this, there's this distaste for the United States to refer to itself as an empire yet it constantly acts like an empire. Why this distaste for being called an empire while continuing to act as one? Is this avoiding being called an empire just another victory of U.S. consumerist propaganda facilitated by the media, another victory for the narrative? So why this distaste for being called an empire while acting like one? Yeah, if, if uh, you you talk about imperialism, you become automatically uh, demons or something very dangerous. So even Mark, Mark, Mark Twain will be uh, one of them, for example, who created the anti-imperialism imperialist league uh, along with others. Uh, um, there, of course, at the beginning, uh, there was the idealism of the founding fathers, uh, just in the paper. Uh, was I would say well at, at least it was a beginning, but uh, in the practice it was nothing about democracy and they, they were uh, fighting against uh, an emperor, a uh, queen, a uh, king, George the Third. So the narrative needs certain consistency. So if you were fighting for for um, for democracy and freedom, you cannot at the same time uh, um, use the word imperialism or empire. So the narrative has to be uh, consistent. It doesn't matter if the narrative as a whole is consistent to reality. 
That's the point. That's the divorce. But the narrative, narrative itself needs to be consistent. However, uh, when in the, in the 19th century there were many discussion about uh, what what did we do in Philippines or in, in uh, Hawaii, etc. Many many said that uh, that is imperialism because they, we impose onto others uh, something that uh, I never asked them for their own opinion. That is uh, imperialism, uh, anti-imperialist uh, used to say at that moment, at the end of the 19th century, at the beginning of the 20th century. But many, uh, many, many senators clearly say, uh, openly say, when when did we ask permission for the Indian to do what we did? When we did ask per- permission or authorization to Mexican to take their land, so on and so forth, when we did ask uh, permission to black people to uh, enslave them, etc., that is the really the spirit of the greatness of America, etc. So there were some who actually were in favor of using the word imperialism. Uh, that is an empire, we are an empire, etc., etc. But they were a minority. And uh, in the 20th century, it literally disappeared because of uh, to prevent that narrative uh, inconsistency or contradiction. So uh, imposing the... Uh, or launching recently a terrible war that left millions of people directly and indirectly dying in Iraq based on false information. Uh, that was uh, at the beginning uh, due to completely different uh, reasons. Uh, in 2003, remember, the Saddam Hussein had a, a weapon of mass, mass destruction, the, they have connection with uh, Al-Qaeda, etc. That was the, the excuse to go to, uh, to war. A few, hour, uh, a few years after, um, George Bush and uh, Spanish President Marias Nar recognized that it was completely wrong. They were used wrong information. Again, what we talked before, the intelligence was not very intelligent. And, and we may suspect that probably it was just, uh, they were not wrong, but just uh, wanted a very um, rapid, immediate uh, effect and win. Um, but most of the, most, I would say, I, I, I think I re- remember correctly, but around 70% of Fox viewers, years after Bush recognized that was a, a wrong uh, a war based on wrong information. They insisted that the, with the previous narrative that uh, Saddam Hussein uh, had uh, um, weapons uh, that actually were sold by the Germany in the 80s with approval of the CIA and, and Washington, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, but so they replaced all that with the narrative of democracy. Why? Well, because nobody. It mostly question that uh, democracy is uh, something bad. Actually, we are all in favor of democracy, but the problem is the meaning of democracy. So, but it doesn't matter. Uh, they consider most of the people are full. So we repeat, we are doing that for liberating Iraqis or giving them from upside down the um, democrat, a democratic system, so on and so forth, liberating them, etc. That's exactly this, the same narrative of the those who took uh, Texas in, in 1836 and, and then the Mexican-American War, we are liberating those fools and uh, giving them freedom and, and teaching uh, Anglo-Saxon democracy, which is uh, the, the free uh, race. So they just replaced race because it, it became, as I said before, in, during the Nazi um, on uh, politically incorrect, but uh, kept the, the democracy um, word as the the main flag, freedom and democracy. And so imperialism is narrated from a narrative point of view, inconsistent and a, a contradiction uh, to that narrative. That is why nobody uh, who uh, launched this irresponsible war of uh, of um, the hegemonic wars and and, and dictatorship, etc. Um, of uh, by the way, there are many dictatorships like. China or Saudi Arabia, who are friends of uh, of Washington, so they are not called uh, dictatorship or etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, so that basically uh, is a need to keep our narrative consistency, the exclusion of imperialism. 
One last question for you, Jorge. We've been speaking with Uruguayan American writer Jorge My Food, who wrote the Common Dreams articles, Cuba and the U.S., the difference between dictatorship and tyranny and consumerism, another inheritance from the slavery system. One last question for you, Jorge, and as we do with all of our guests, our final question is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience will hate your response. <laughs> you write that consumerism is another fragmentation and restricting of thoughts emotions and desires within a narrow framework. Not only does it prevent thinking about the suffering of other nations, it also prevents any kind of individual change within those nations that supposedly benefit from this poison as it is primarily an addiction that numbs the senses and that is consumerism again. So if the U.S. controls via consumerism, is the only way those dominated by the U.S. can become free and independent? Is it to deny that consumerism, not fall for U.S. media propaganda? And can consumer? how can consumerism be challenged? I mean, we're all caught up in this world of globalization at this point in time. Can the countries that are dominated by U.S. consumerism through U.S. consumerism and advertising propaganda, how can they become free of that consumerism and propaganda? Yes, that's a really hard question, uh, but it, it, it needs, uh, obviously, a deep cultural change, dramatic. And that change normally happens uh, in a moment of a deep crisis. We didn't got to uh, that very terrible crisis, uh, which is uh, in, in, in this century is going to be the, the climate change uh, that will produce a lot of social conflict. At that moment, uh, it was a, it's going to be a awakening moment. And, uh, and consumerism culture is not just now an American uh, problem, obviously. It's a global problem that uh, was spread up from the North, uh, East, I mean, the North Atlantic uh, culture. But uh, it, it is already in China, it's already in Africa, well, in some places in Africa, it's already in many places in, in Latin America, in Europe, etc. So we need a deeper change of uh, cultural change. and. Uh, that is not going to come just because of uh, we realize that we did something wrong, but we unfortunately will need to suffer the consequence up to a degree in order to begin to take uh, certain changes. Of course, there are certain other gradual changes, like, for example, replacing car by bicycle, etc., which is impossible here in the U.S. For example, in many cities, you can't you can go to work uh, uh, in bicycle. Impossible. There are not. No, no way. Or in, in public transportation, no way. So many policies need to be changed uh, in that sense. And unfortunately, uh, many others will, uh, I mean, mentality will change uh, due to more deep crisis, uh, more deep crisis due to the climate change and social unrest. Jorge, I really appreciate you being on the show today. This is fascinating writing that you have over at Common Dreams. Again, the articles are Cuba and the U.S., the difference between dictatorship and tyranny, and consumerism, another inheritance from the slavery system. You can find out more about Jorge at his website, myfood.org. That's M-A-J-F-U-D.org. Thank you so much for being on our show today. Thank you, Chuck. It was a, a pleasure. Thank you very much. All right. Take care. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996, this is hell. And if you would like to, if you, if you like what you just heard, from Jorge on tyranny, dictatorships, advertising, consumerism, imperialism, hegemony. If you like that conversation, you like what we just discussed, please show your support for completely listener-supported legendary This Is Hell by subscribing to our weekly Friday Patreon podcast, which features a brand new monologue by me and a classic archived interview that is unavailable anywhere else online subscribe at patreon.com slash this is hell more listeners are sharing how they discovered this is hell for the first time and we're going to be sharing those with you tomorrow because we're running up against the clock uh so in the meantime alex please remind our listeners what is this week's question from hell and how are our listeners responding this week's question from hell is what are we going to be talking about on this show on our 50th anniversary in the year 2046 Justin M. says, Today in hell, ocean fires on the eastern seaboard continue to rage as President Grimes and First Gentleman Elon Musk address the nation from their moon bunker. Scientists are still baffled by the kamikaze bird phenomenon plaguing the nation's personal jet commuters. Amazon guillotine sales reach a new record high, and we talk to podcaster slash influencer Henry Kissinger about living, laughing, and loving at 123. 
This is producer Alex in for Chuck, who is out today with the eponymous Mertz disease, characterized by confusion, vulgarity, and crippling cynicism. Also, Jeff Torchin. That was just them. Mike C says, post-ocean rise, all aboard. The SS Moment of Truth canoe is leaving for Canada. Last call. What are we all going to be talking about on this show in the year 2046? Pen D says, um, have you been listening? Warren L says, why isn't anyone doing anything about the price of narcotics? What are we going to talk about on this show in the year 2046, which will be our 50th anniversary? Bradley R. says, the ongoing negotiations between the delegates of the world's major workers' councils over how best to distribute food surpluses. Just kidding. Probably something about racism in the CIA. <laughs> Roberto G. says, nothing. No one here left to talk. David I. says, the thirst that is the thirst. And finally, what are we going to be talking about on this show on our 50th anniversary of 2046? No Whack W says, Robo Chuck interviews Terminator Model T2 and Skynet Operator 23 on their new two-bit audio bestseller, An All-Too-Human Threat, Breathers in Their Habitats. <laughs> and in a moment of raw data, our Jeff Dorchin algorithm will creatively recite all lines of code from the first directive on shuffle and repeat. We will have the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell on tomorrow's show. Alex, who is on tomorrow's Thursday's live one-hour show at 10 a.m. Chicago time right here at thisishell.com? A hypocrite reader's Avi Gorelick will be on to talk about his piece, The Violence is the Point. We'll have more of your stories about how you discovered This Is Hell, if you'd like to share your story. Send us an email at chuck at thisishell.com. We'll also be telling you what's happening on our weekly bonus Friday Patreon podcast, which you can hear by subscribing at patreon.com slash thisishell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Alexander Jerry. Thanks to Alex for booking today's guest, as well as running the board and producing today. Thanks to Jorge My Food, our guest today. You can find out more about Jorge at myfood.org. That's M-A-J-F-U-D.org. You have been listening to God's Favorite Radio Show. Prove us wrong. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>